I'm Matt Wilson from the Eden Network. Tell us a little bit about the Eden Network. The thing about the Eden Network is uh, it's a bit of a cryptic name, actually, uh, because you probably never guess what we do from that name. Uh, you know, it conjures up sort of images of, uh, you know, b- botanical gardens and that sort of thing, doesn't it? And that couldn't be further from the truth, actually. Uh, we're about the urban jungle, really. That's, uh, that's always been uh, where we've uh, felt our kind of purpose and our existence and our meaning is found. Uh, and that goes right back to our roots 15 years ago uh, in, uh, in some very dodgy council estates in Manchester. Uh, and ever since, really, it seems like, uh, you know, our desire to make a difference in the world, uh, the kind of places where we can really make a difference are the kind of places that everybody else uh, forgets about and avoids. And, uh, and so, yeah, so we're about impacting young people's lives, teenagers, families, uh, trying to uh, give them better opportunities and life chances and, uh, and doing that all in the name of Jesus because we, uh, we feel like he's, uh, he's set as a fantastic example about how to live. What's the connection between the Message Trust and the Eden Network? Yeah, the Message Trust, again, if we rewrite, rewind 15 years, um, really all that consisted of uh, in the mid to late 90s was a band called the Worldwide Message Tribe, which perhaps some of the listeners will remember. Uh, with my boss Andy Hawthorne was the front man, Heavy Foot yeah. Hawthorne they called him, touring around local schools in Manchester. Yeah. And, uh, and it just became apparent after a few years of doing that that uh, you know, these, um, these high energy kind of uh, visits to these local schools um, were stirring up a lot of passion and enthusiasm, a lot of uh, interest in the Christian faith uh, and in who is Jesus. Um, but weren't able to take that much further. And uh, it was great in the suburbs where the larger churches are because they had, uh, you know, paid staff, youth workers. Uh, you know, they were organized. They had a timetable of activities. They had a budget to spend. But in the inner city, uh, in what they sometimes uh, unfortunately call the sink schools, um, that just wasn't available. You know, you couldn't find a vibrant church anywhere in, uh, in those parts of Manchester, really. Uh, and so we we started to pray about that and uh, started to try and work out what do we do uh, about these teenagers who uh, are hungry for uh, for spiritual things, um, but just don't get opportunity within their community to do anything with that. And uh, the short answer to those prayers was we need to be the answer to our own prayers and we need to get involved in being part of the solution. Right. So we all moved in. We all moved into a really dodgy neighbourhood in South Manchester. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was a bit of a crazy thing to do. Um, we didn't really, you know, we didn't have a textbook. None of us had been to college or any, or well, for the right subjects anyway. Yeah. Uh, so we just learnt on the hoof and uh, and the rest is history, as they say. So why? What, why, did, why did you move into these areas? You know what? The short answer, Andy, is we were broken hearted. Right. Um, we just could not bear to see uh, the way that these teenagers that we were spending time with uh, in the school, and by this point, we'd also, you know, we developed kind of out-of-school activities, holiday schemes, things like that. But we could see that every good thing we were doing for them was being undermined by uh, just some of the terrible influences on their lives in the community. Uh, you know, the local drug dealer on the corner. Uh, perhaps, you know, in their extended family, older siblings, dragging them down the wrong path, or even their parents, 
you know, parents who, you know, maybe addicts or, you know, banged up in prison, absent, uh, abusive, um, all that sort of stuff. And we, you could just see the path that these teenagers were on. Uh, and we just thought somebody's got to stand in the gap. Somebody's got to be there and show them and love them uh, and listen to them and be around to say, come on, actually, you can make a go of your life. You've got potential. Uh, but that meant we needed to see them more than just once a week, you know, on a Wednesday yeah. night or on a Tuesday lunchtime. Uh, you know, we needed to be part of their world. Sure. I mean, I, I suppose um, some listeners might ask, um, why why you moved into the area? Why didn't people in the area were encouraged to, to do the work that you guys did? What? Yeah, I mean, that's a really legitimate question. Um, uh, at that particular time, in that particular community, um, you know, every other house was boarded up. And uh, anybody who'd got the wherewithal and the means had got out. Um, so, you know, it had sunk to its lowest ebb. Now, historically, that's where my family are from. Uh, when they were all cleared out of the inner city Manchester in the post-war slum clearances, they all ended up in that part of town. It's called Withingshaw. Uh, so I knew it reasonably well. And, uh, and these days, we talk about three categories of people that we get involved in our work. Um, people we call remainers, which will be people who are already in the neighborhood uh, and perhaps have had the opportunity over the years to get out, but have chosen not to. They've chosen to stay put because they've got a vision for what their community could be. Um, the returners, you know, people who've got some kind of history with that neighborhood, um, some kind of heritage there that they're reconnecting with. And I put myself in that category, uh, you know. And then what we call the relocators, people who just adopt these communities as home. And, uh, and over the years, we've kind of seen a, a, perhaps a more healthy balance emerge. So, for instance, uh, you know, down... Um, in Teesside, you've got uh, Tony Grange there on the Easter side estate, just south of Middlesbrough, uh, and he's homegrown. You know, he nice. grew up on the estate there, and uh, he was reached uh, through the Ministry of Youth for Christ. Uh, they did a great job of mentoring Tony. And, uh, and then, you know, a couple of years ago, we took him on as our, as our team leader in that estate. And, uh, and so I love it when that happens. And that, that story is now replicated in uh, certainly four or five of, uh, of the estate's up and down the country where we're doing, uh, where we've got Eden happening. And, you know, that's about, probably about 20, 25% of our leaders are now homegrown leaders, which is fantastic. Right, okay. I mean, you mentioned about the uh, the, the project at Teesside. Can you tell us a little bit more about that one? Yeah, that's one of uh, of a few that we've been having a go at trying to get off the ground up in the northeast. Uh, we got an invitation to the northeast initially by uh, some leaders up in Newcastle, um, the Together in Christ group, and uh, they just really badgered us, uh, saying, come on, <laughs> we feel like, um, you know, in terms of uh, the bigger landscape of uh, trying to see community transformation uh, in, in the whole of the northeast region, really, uh, Eden ought to be able to play a part in that. And, and so we took that invitation, and um, at the very, very early days of Eden, there was a guy involved, um, he was a church leader in Manchester at the time, a guy called Martin Dunkley. And, uh, and then he, he went off up to the northeast and got involved in leading a, planted a new church called Tees Valley Community Church. And uh, so because we knew Martin, um, Martin immediately called us and said, well, if you come into the northeast, I want to work with you. And, uh, and you know, the first place that we, uh, where we've already 
seen a little bit of uh, impact being made that we could work, you know, build on uh, is Easter side. So, so that's how the T side thing came together. Is through that, and that, to be honest, Andy, that's how we always work. We work relationally. Uh, we don't go anywhere. We're not invited. Uh, but if people say, "Hey, come on, maybe uh, you know we could use this Eden framework, this Eden model to make a difference in our community," then you know we'll do whatever we can to uh, to try and to try and help. Got another project, haven't you, in the northeast running? Is, is that right? Yeah, we have. Well, we launched three almost simultaneously, and because um, we we find that uh, if we do that, that you end up with a uh, you know you've got the ability to uh, get some economies of scale. Um, so you know we're recruiting people, we're trying to train people, we're trying to resource people, uh, and we can do that together. So it makes sense to have a bit of critical mass. Uh, so the other two that we launched were uh, were in Biker in Newcastle and also up the coast in Northumberland in uh, in Blythe. Yeah. Now, uh, as with any kind of startup venture, sometimes you get off to a great start, sometimes you don't. Right. So the uh, the working biker kind of faltered, um, and uh, you know we've been working behind the scenes just to uh, just to work out what next there in that community after an initial burst of six or nine months of. Things going very well. It, that work got into difficulty, and we're, like I say, behind the scenes trying to fix that at the moment. But up in Blythe, it's just going fantastically well. Um, and funnily enough, if you'd have asked me to predict when we started it, you know, which would have been the success and which would have been the failure, I would have, I would have felt that Blythe was much more difficult because it's much more isolated. Um, you know, Christian projects in Blythe haven't got a history of doing very well. Um, you know, whereas Newcastle is a big urban centre, and uh, you know, you would have thought that something would have flown there. Uh, but anyway, you know, such is life. And uh, but yeah, I'm thrilled by how things are going up in Blythe. And uh, it seems like uh, that even though it's a very small team up there, you know, we desperately need other people to get involved. They've planted a church. They've got dozens of teenagers who are getting involved, and you know some really deep work going on in, in, in yeah. some teenagers who've been dealt a really raw deal in life and suddenly finding hope. Uh, and uh, it's very exciting. How would you describe the Eden network? Sure. As it were? sure. It's just very grassroots, very organic kind of youth and community work. Right. Um, what we, you know, we are, we're very, very passionate about, uh, about our Christian faith. Um, so that comes through quite strongly, um, although that doesn't. We really have worked hard over the years to make sure that doesn't create any exclusivism. Um, so you know, we work with anybody, uh, you know, from any kind of background. Um, you know, any, anybody's welcome. Um, but we, you know, we the Christian faith is is quite you know is quite for, at the forefront. Um, so the you know the links with local churches are very strong. Um, but really, yeah, it's uh, you know it's day in day out. It's uh, it's probably a bit less um, structured and program orientated than other kinds of youth work. We're a bit more spontaneous and, like I say, a bit more organic. It's very much about friendship, um, you know. So because we insist that everybody who's going to be on one of our teams is a is a resident of the community, yeah. um, and as we've previously discussed just then, uh, you know, either they're already living there or they move in. Uh, and they make a long-term commitment to that. So that kind of gives it a very distinctive flavour because we're, we're kind of saying, look, we're sharing in the struggle of this neighbourhood uh, and the fact that this neighbourhood maybe has had a raw deal for generations. Um, well, you know, we're experiencing that on a day-to-day -day basis ourselves. So 
you know, beginning to try and solve some of those intractable problems. Um, you know, we're, we're very passionate about that because we're doing it for our kids as well as for everyone else's. How would you describe yourself then in, in terms of how you fit in? I'm, I'm just a plodder, really. You know, yeah. if, there's, if there's one thing I'm good at, it's just... Um, I just tenaciously get on with it and uh, and don't give up. Right. So yeah, my, I mean my own background. I'm you know from a pretty solid family, and uh, so you know my my parents are uh, are still together. You know I'm not from a uh, dysfunctional or broken background, but I did get into uh, even even given you know a supportive family unit. I got into a lot of bother as a teenager. Now it's really uh, messed up stuff. And uh, so yeah, my own personal sort of uh, encounter with Jesus at, uh, at 20 years old um, from actually, you know, being in a very messed up place involved in, you know, because I was a child of the late 80s, early 90s. So all that era of uh, the rave scene and ecstasy and warehouse parties and all that kind of thing. That was my scene. And uh, yeah, it, you know, it left me. Um, you know, leaving my end of my teens and entering my twenties, just feeling a very, very empty, lost soul, and uh, feeling like life had got nothing for me. And then, uh, you know, it was at the bottom of the barrel that, uh, you know, I found, you know, Jesus was down there waiting for me. So, um, yeah, and so my own experience of uh, of having my life reorientated, you know, onto onto a better path. Um, you know, just I think that drives me. I, I, I just refuse, uh, you know, when I'm out there meeting people who, you know, first impressions might seem like a lost cause. I've seen, you know, in my own life and so many other people's that there is no such thing as a lost cause. There's hope for everybody. And that uh, that keeps me going, gets me out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Still kind of getting my head around this where you, you, you physically moved into a community. Yeah. Well, I mean, what sort of challenges did you face when you did that? I mean, it, it's comfortable circumstances, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we were rough yeah. for a while. And <laughs> uh, if I could just get a little plug in for my new book. Um, Go for it. You'll, you'll certainly find um, <laughs> stories in that book. It's called Concrete Faith that illustrate not just from my own point of view, but from, you know, many different people telling their stories about uh, moving into the neighborhood. Uh, you know, the book begins with uh, my mate Dave Nuttall and his story. He's the real hero. Uh, he literally moved into a house that, uh, you know, a couple of days before he moved in, the local scallywags had uh, robbed all the copper pipes out of it. So he had no heating, no nothing. Uh, you know, he was a sleeping bag on the uh, on the floor, just kind of staking out his claim for the first few days. I mean... My house was just slightly better than that. You know, I had hot water, but, uh, you know, we didn't have carpets in. Some of the windows, uh, you know, hadn't been put in properly. Because they put this, these, back in those days, you had steel shutters on yeah. the windows so that, you know, uh, it didn't become a crack den or, you know, they didn't rub all the copper out of it. So, yeah, you know, we were, it was pretty volatile. Um, but this, you know, this was the late 90s. For, for guys moving in today, uh, and, you know, I don't want to... Uh, Occasionally, like re recently, we moved some people into East London, into Tower Hamlets in East London, and uh, they bought a squat at auction, and uh, they literally had to camp out in the house because if they didn't, the squatters would come back. Uh, so it was, you know, they had to live in the midst of a building site while they sorted the house out. But for ninety-nine percent of the people who join, actually, you know, it's just a case of going to the estate agents, finding a house, 
back in your bags, in you go. Um, the most important thing we find is in those first few days is letting your neighbours know who you are. You know, yeah. I've got a, uh, I've moved around quite a bit over the years. Part of uh, part of what I do now within the Eden Network is just to b- break new ground. You know, so I took my family down to London a few years ago, and we, uh, you know, we began starting the new network in London. Uh, you know, but that meant knocking on for the neighbours, asking if I could borrow stuff. Um, God, I don't wait for people to come to me. You know, you go to them. Uh, you can certainly suss out, you know, what kind of neighbours you've got by the expression on your face, on their face when you ask to borrow something for the first time. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we just, uh, you know, if, we, if there's any flack, we just have to try and take it on the chin. Um, but for the most part, we uh, we do find ourselves, um, you know, meeting with an amazing welcome. I mean, I, I mentioned just a minute ago about a biker, didn't I? Yeah. I mean, one of the, uh, uh, we we had two houses in bike. well, there still are two houses in Biker, uh, you know, that folks had moved into. I mean, the welcome they received from their neighbours was fantastic. I mean, credit, you know, to that community. Um, you know, they really know how to uh, look after one another. Uh, in a place like that and uh, you know we wouldn't want to kind of be uh, projecting any negative stereotypes that we sort of you know we're moving in a bit dodging bullets you know that's you tend to find actually in uh, in the urban areas the sense of community is often much stronger than you might find uh, you know maybe out in the uh, what I call the Barrett belt you know all the new build commuter homes where nobody talks to each other to, to get this straight, not, not only did, did you, but your family moved into the into the, this this inner city area. Is that is that right? Uh, well, I wasn't married when we all started. This was fifteen right. years ago. But uh, no, but since then, yeah, got married and had kids, and uh, we've moved around a bit. We now live in Salford, right, in uh, in in Manchester. Um, you know, which has a mixed sort of reputation. Um, <laughs> we, we had riots over this. It was ironic. We'd been in London, you know, we'd moved down to London. We tried to uh, break some new ground in London. We had two years there and we left. We got back to Man- We got back to Salford because we have a house there. And um, we were watching the riots on the telly in London. And I was saying to my wife, I, was, I wonder what it'd be like waking up in the morning in London, you know, with riots. And then what do you know, the next day, the very next day, you know, the riots come to Salford and it all kicked right. off, you know, down the road. So, um yeah, you know, sometimes things flare up. Um, everybody asks the typical questions. What about schools? You know, what about local schools? Um, yeah, well, you know, you just got to get stuck in. And, you you know, like I said earlier, you find yourself fighting harder for the issues because, you know, it's affecting you too. So, you know, my own, uh, you know, my little boy, the little school he goes to, um, you know, we really want to see that school succeeding. And, you know, in his in his class, he's got some kids from very, very poor families, you know. And uh, so, you know, we sometimes have to have words in the playground and, you know, deal with diffusing situations and things like that. But, uh, you know, we, we believe God's called us to be yeast in the dough. Yeah. Um, and, you know, should we wonder that some of these communities are, you know, in such a bad way when... Uh, you know, very often they've been ignored by Christians for decades. Have you got Have you got any sort of stories that you could share, really, of, of, of that, that sort of demonstrates the success of this this, this project? Oh, blimey! Sack, <laughs> sack loads of stories. Sack loads yeah. of stories. I mean, uh, well, another thing I would say um, for the benefit of the listeners is, yeah. 
um, you know, we really do want to uh, help people to try and get a glimpse of, of what life's like uh, for the folks on our teams. So we've got a fantastic website, um, eden-network.org, and, um, and it's got a media section with some fantastic little films on there. Um, one of them is from Easterside, actually. Oh, uh, okay. Little five-minute films, just uh, and then some stories from some of the teenagers. Um, one of the things that uh, always strikes me is uh, it's, it, some of the kids we're working with, they face such massive difficulties. Um, you know, for instance, uh, you know, perhaps I'm thinking of one girl. Um, her her story's in my book, actually. Um, it's under a different name because she didn't want to be named because her story's a bit messed up. But, um, you know, she was living, um, she's living at home, life ticking along quite nicely, uh, you know, poverty, but, uh, but getting by, dad's a taxi driver. Anyway, he, he got caught up in some bad stuff, ended up getting banged up in prison. And, uh, and then, then he died in prison really suddenly. Um, and, you know, her mum found that very difficult to cope with. So she found another fella and the other fella was a drinker. He moved in. It, she became a drinker. So suddenly this girl's world in her teenage years is just turned upside down. She's got this strange bloke in her house, uh, you know, off his skull every night. Then he starts beating her mum up. So she gets caught in the crossfire, all this stuff. And uh, and if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, we we had, you know, our team members living on her street and she could go around their house, you know, as a place of escape and, uh, and could talk to them and could pray with them and, uh, and kept a little diary uh, about what was going on there. And, uh, you know, one of the, uh, it's basically the only prayer she prayed for about 12 months was God, if you're real, get rid of this bloke out of my house. And, uh, you know, and then eventually, eventually just, one day got up and left and uh, obviously that was very good news for her and everybody else in her family um, but you, you know you see her now you know and uh, after the team's been working with her for six or seven years you know she's got a steady job um, she's just taking her driving lessons um, she just applied for a passport for the first time she saved up some money taking the family on holiday to Egypt first time they've ever been abroad and uh, you know the the direction of that family has profoundly changed um, because of the intervention. Um, yeah, and there's lots and lots of stories like there where it's just, um, you know, so we, you talk about people who are hard to reach. You know, if, if I go along to meetings with, for instance, sort of local authority, public sector colleagues, they talk about these groups they call the hard to reach. And they're kind of nameless, faceless groups statistics on a graph you know the two percent of hard to reach families well they're not statistics to us we get alongside these people we get to know their names we wait for them to you know invite us into their world so that we can begin to start making a difference you know we've i mean one of the things again that you'll find coming through the book i just put the word out there you know we've got about 200 people involved in eden teams up and down the country i just said look if you think you've got a story that's worth telling just put it down on paper and we'll, uh, you know, we'll see if we can get it in the book. I, I not even realized how many of the guys in our teams had actually started fostering and, adop and adopting kids. Um, just because, you know, sometimes they'll get involved in a, in a situation that is just so messed up 
um, that you know they'll come to an arrangement with the family and with the local authorities. Say, well, look, you know, move in our spare room for the next six months. Uh, get some time out uh, while we work on this together uh, and try and get these relationships restored. Yeah. So the lengths that people are going to is just incredible. You know, it just takes my breath away. And I often say, whenever I hang out with the guys. I have to remind them every single time. They are my heroes. Absolutely. Uh, they really are. The stuff they're doing, the lengths they're going to uh, in order to see people's lives, you know, rescued fundamentally, uh, you know, from a from a life of uh, that would just be so pitiful. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's just a, astonishing stuff. What sort of things, you know, practically can can we do in our communities now, you know, as as Christians? Yeah, you've. You've got to make a choice, really, um, to, to invest in the neighborhood. Um, I'm just, at the moment, just organizing a, you know, like a Jubilee street party on my street. Right. And um, so that's given me a great opportunity just to stop people in the street, knock on doors, that kind of thing. Um, but I've been astonished. And, not, you know, our street is not really at all a rough street. Um, but uh, I, w- I was astonished how many people are just living behind their doors hiding away, um, actually living quite solitary sort of lonely lives, you know, perhaps as a, maybe as a family unit or whatever. But um, I, th- I think in terms of if I could answer that question in, on put that on quite a grand canvas, yeah. um, what is happening in our nation at the moment? And this is true, not just for urban areas and inner city areas, but this would be true, you know, for nicer postcodes as well is we're seeing community fragment into smaller and smaller pieces. And I think the really, really important role of the church in these first few decades of the 21st century is we've got to start reweaving community. If we're not prepared to make the first move and start to connect people and start to build community in whatever way, um, you know, if we don't do it, nobody else is going to. Uh, that's, that's what I can see. Uh, I have a few little maxims about that, a few things I have to say, I'd say watch out for. You know, so I was at the Spring Harvest Conference recently uh, and I was just kind of giving a few uh, one-liners. You know, stop serving the poor. Um, you know, while ever we uh, have this uh, stance of, you know, we're the ones who've got all the answers uh, and we just kind of come in and deliver the goods and you're yeah. on the receiving end of it. We've got, to, we've got to pack that in. Uh, you know, we've got to work on a much more level playing field. We, uh, we, we see ourselves as journeying with people, uh, not doing stuff to people or for people, not robbing them of their dignity, uh, but actually, you know, not patronizing anybody. Uh, we recognize, yeah, maybe we've got some skills, maybe we've got some expertise, but we don't force that on anybody. Uh, and our job is about, you know, it's about empowerment. It's about releasing people's potential to take hold of the reins of their own destiny. Um, yeah, I would say, I always say anybody who's getting involved in, you know, from first base, um, you know, first of all, participate before you initiate. Find something that's already going on. Maybe there's something that's been initiated by the community that needs a helping hand, needs volunteers before you go coming up with your own good ideas, coming up with your own, you know, spend six months, 12 months, 18 months, two years, burying yourself in the life of, you know, getting involved in a local youth club or, you know, some local kids work or something like that so that you can see it from the perspective of, uh, of what is it like to, uh, you know, to, to be part of this local community and participation 
uh, I think is really key. I think one of the things about Christians is, um, you know, we uh, we do we do like it to be we like to be in control. You know, we, we like it to be our initiative, our, our sort of name on the letterhead. And, uh, you know, we need to learn how to be a bit more humble about that. Um, yeah. So there's just a couple of little suggestions. Lots more in the book. Yeah, I mean, obviously a bit of play on words there because, yeah. again, I, I worry that uh, Christianity in the 21st century has just become too abstract. Yeah. It's just become about uh, beliefs rather than actions. And uh, I just love that the throwaway verse in the book of James. You know, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm all for a kind of a faith in action. <laughs> 